This week, we continue our We Believe series. The last two weeks, we've looked at the means of grace, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This week, we'll be moving on to the Apostles' Creed. And even that title, that title can begin to bring up questions. What is a, what is a creed? What is this, why is this one called the Apostles' Creed? Why do we think that it's important? A creed is defined as a statement of belief. It's something that we believe to be true. There are three creeds, three statements of belief that a church must prescribe to in order to be considered Christian. There are some bodies of belief that claim to be Christian but do not confess these creeds. This would include like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Claims are one thing, but you have to actually share the beliefs. You have to be able to confess the creeds, and if you can't, then your organization should not fit or would not fit under the the Christian umbrella. The three creeds are the Athanasian Creed. I always say that one wrong. The Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. The Athanasian and the Nicene Creeds use language that we typically aren't as familiar with, though the Nicene, like, throws in the quick and the dead, which I've always thought is really cool. But uh, that's, yeah, they just use language we're not typically as familiar with. The Athanasian Creed is, is super long. Like, it's, it's real long. Uh, and we have confessed the Nicene here at, at Calvary before, but it's, it's just a little different. And like I said, some of the words are weird, so we don't use that one super often. Instead, sticking with the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of like the NIV translation of the Bible. It's, it's a bit simpler, it reads easier, but it hits all the notes that it needs to. We call it the Apostles' Creed because it is a summary statement of the Apostles' doctrinal teaching as found in Scripture. This is not something that they confessed themselves. Peter, Paul, and and the rest of the disciples didn't stand around and and write this. So if they didn't write it, and, and, and it's not technically found in the Bible, why is it a big deal for us? Because it's important for us to know what we believe. The Apostles' Creed, or any of the three creeds for that matter, express what we believe. And we confess them over and over so that we might remember them. Again, just because the apostles didn't write this creed doesn't mean that they wouldn't approve of it. It is the summary of their teachings and is designed to give us something to stand on, to confess, to rest in. It is intended to help us remember who our God is, what he has done, and what his intentions are towards us. And as we confess it, as we repeat it, our voices join the Christians throughout the centuries in expressing our faith in this way. And we break the Apostles' Creed into three articles, and we'll be looking at the first article this morning. The first article of the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, there are quite a few places we could start as we begin to explore what we are confessing about God in this first article. Today, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16. We look at at God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Isaiah was was a pretty big deal as a prophet in the Old Testament. Much of what we know about Jesus, much of the prophecy of of Jesus came from the lips of Isaiah. And so it seems fitting that we also find truths about God the Father from this particular prophet. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. If not, that works too, as the words will be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning, Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16. But you are our Father. 
Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. That sends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. Nobody said that parenting would be easy. And though parenting is fulfilling and exhilarating and joyful and exasperating and elicits a crazy wide swath of emotional responses, it's typically one age that you are warned about, at least in the beginning. Most of our children weren't that difficult at this age. They hit their rough spots about half a year earlier, but we've definitely, or we're definitely feeling it with little Noah. Dude has firmly planted his flag in the terrible twos. The age or the time when kids first begin to assert their will over yours, over or, or against their parents' will. That's not to say that to this point Noah's been a perfect child, obviously. He isn't a big fan of hearing the word no. And he's heard his fair share of that particular word in his small life span. But there hasn't been a time in his life to this point where he has directed that word quite so forcefully towards his mother and father as he has in the recent months. And it would be more frustrating if it wasn't also sometimes just so comically cute. He asserts his rebellious will, his desires to run counter to what mom and dad wanted to do by firmly crossing his arms high and tight. This isn't a lazy and relaxed crossing. His arms are high and they're tight, and he scrunches up his face, looks you in the eye firmly and states, no. Man, does life get harder when kids decide to start asserting their will, particularly when it goes against the will of mom and dad. It used to be fun to take Noah to pick up his brothers from school. We'd, we'd get there early, and he'd practice running up and down the little incline, the little hill. And when it came time for his brothers to be released, I would call, and Noah would just kind of waddle over, right, and with outstretched arms, and I'd pick him up, and the brothers would run to us, and we'd head to the car to come home. It was awesome. But that was last year. This year when I take Noah, sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's great. But most times... That little dude's a, pair, a pain in my rear end. Noah, can I carry you? Elijah's class dismisses soon. No. Noah, we've got to move a little quicker. Caleb's class has been dismissed, and we've got to get all the way around the building and up the hill. Can I carry you? No. Noah, stop playing in the leaves. Your brothers are waiting for us. No. And we'll spend some time just... Trudging to the next doors, Noah getting distracted, having a hard time, stumbling over the roots of a tree that he decided to investigate, or, or practicing hanging on the railings like he witnessed his older brothers doing. And it's not like we're not the only ones around, right? Like, this is school dismissal. These kids are running around him and us, zipping here and there. They're not looking out for the little obstinate two-year-old. And he'll get to the point where I don't even have to ask Noah a question. I'll say his name, and he goes, no. Until the point where he's pushed too far, and Dad needs to take the reins, and I pick the kid up, and he starts fighting me, pushing against me, swinging his little punk feet. 
And so I hold him close, and I tell him it's done, no more, he's going to listen to me now, and most times he doesn't like that. But he doesn't have much choice, and so we go to finish up school pickup and make our way home. But man, it would be nice if the only time I heard no from my son was at school pickup. Feels like the last few months that's been his favorite word. He doesn't want to eat what we give him. If, if we left it up to him, he'd eat a steady diet of Lucky Charms. We can't even have that cereal in the house anymore because he doesn't eat the cereal. He just goes through and picks out all the marshmallows. If we left it up to him, bedtime wouldn't exist, right? He'd just go to sleep wherever his legs gave out that night. If we left it up to him, he wouldn't make it very long, would he? He doesn't have the ability to provide for himself. He doesn't have the ability to go shopping and get food. He'd starve without us. Kid can't even change his diaper. If it wasn't for mom and dad, he'd be running around in his own excrement all day long. He doesn't have the ability to keep himself alive, but he has no problem asserting his will. Though he has proven time and time again that he is not capable, he wants to run his life. He wants autonomy. He wants control. He wants authority. He wants to be the king. In his own simple, little sinful way, Noah wants to be God. We start early, don't we? We start early, and we don't stop. Lord knows I have not been a perfect son, but though I have failed my father and mother, failed to listen, love, honor, and respect them as I should, though I have failed my earthly parents, I have failed my heavenly father all the more. Time and time again, I've known what God wants of me, what he demands of me. I've known what is expected of one of his children. And I've crossed my arms high and tight and said no. Because I want to do it my way. I want to do what looks like fun. I want to do what the others are doing. I want to disobey because I think I know better. And, and deep down, there's a part of me that craves to do what I have been told I should not can any of you relate to that? Anyone else cross lines they know they shouldn't? Anyone else try to excuse away our sinful experimentation with thoughts like, well, God's love and his grace are so good and so big, I might as well take this opportunity to test their limits because it sounds like fun, because I want to, because I think it'll make me feel good, because I feel left out, because, because I deserve it, because I know better. Because I know what I need and God is trying to keep me from it. Why should he get to tell me what to do with my life? He doesn't understand the world that we live in. He's, he's basically irrelevant, right? Does he understand how unfair the things that he asks of me are? No, nah, man, I'm going to do me. I'm going to do me. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to get mine. With arms crossed, high and tight, we say no. Can anyone else relate to that? We don't really like the implications of that, do we? It's not a fun thought. Looking at ourselves in the mirror that way just isn't very comfortable. And so for some of us, maybe some of us in the pews this morning, but definitely some of us out in our world, in our culture, some of us have decided that it's easier just to deny that there is a God than it is to face the hard truths that are present or that present themselves if there is one. 
For some of us, the notion of an almighty God who is the creator of the universe is just a bridge too far. Instead of acknowledging Genesis 1-1 where we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, instead of recognizing intelligent design and all that would entail, we prefer to just believe that it happened. Maybe it was a bang. Maybe it was something else, but instead of attributing the beauty of creation, the, the intricacy of nature, the delicacy of an infant in the womb, and how so many things have to be balanced just right from a genetic standpoint, how the waves move in the ocean, how some water is salty and some water is fresh, how the seasons change, how fire, though destructive, is also cleansing and brings new life to a forest. We look at the world around us, and instead of recognizing how detail after detail depends upon each other it's all interwoven how it's all one big orchestra that is playing the same song sometimes vicious and scary and sometimes powerful and untamed and sometimes delicate and soft but all working together in the symphony of nature and instead of seeing a composer we prefer to see chance Though the evidence of intelligent design and the evidence of God the creator is all around us, we prefer to ignore it and we make a God of what was created instead of the creator himself. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis has this to say about this phenomenon. Many use the scientific method to deny the presence of the creator. They are like the piano mice who lived all their lives in a large piano. The music of the instrument came to them in their piano world, filling all the dark places, the spaces, with, with sound and harmony. At first, the mice were impressed by it. They, they drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music, though invisible to them. Someone above, yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. And then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He had found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of, of graduated lengths trembled and vibrated. They must revise all their old beliefs. None but the most conservative could any longer believe in the unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were now the secret. Great numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, though the pianist continued to play. We may look at nature and and choose to see our understandings of science and mathematics and fit the whole shebang into a box that we can manipulate and, and control and that fits into our preferred understandings, denying the work of the Creator. But the whole time, in spite of our denial, the pianist continues to play. God does not stop being God, though we lack faith. He is the God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Our perception of him, our denial of him, does not cause him to cease or desist. We may want that type of power, but it will never be ours. God is God. He is an eternal spirit who is loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, wise, good, merciful, holy, true, and just. 
Although God has revealed himself to us in various ways, no human mind can fully comprehend or understand him. Our lack of understanding, and yes, our lack of faith, does not diminish our God, the God Almighty. Oh, wow, how we have wandered from where God desires us to be. We know this to be true in our world. We know this to be true in our hearts. But see what God desires of us and cross our arms high and tight saying no. And we know that this is not just an us problem, but has always been a problem for us, for, for mankind. For we see this in our text from Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 63 is, is, is from the, closer to the end uh, of the book, and, and it's not really ending well. Things are falling apart in Israel. In our text, Isaiah says that if the patriarchs, if Abraham and Isaac were to see where Israel was during this time of Isaiah, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even recognize them. We read, though Abraham does not know us, or though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledge us. Think about that. These guys are fathers of the faith, but the book of Genesis is filled with their shortcomings and flawed ability to follow God. And yet the prophet Isaiah says that if those fallible men, if Abraham and Isaac were to see the state of Israel, the state of the people of God, they wouldn't recognize them. Raymond Siortland Jr. put it this way in his commentary on Isaiah. If the ancient patriarchs could get into a time machine and hit the fast-forward button and reappear among the people of God at Isaiah's times, Abraham and Isaac would, or, yeah, Abraham and Israel would look at them and say, Who are you? Who are you? The people of God have drifted. They need renewal. And we feel that, don't we? Because we, too, need renewal renewal. We too need to remember our God, God the Father. And maybe, maybe for some of us, it's the father part that we struggle with. Not all of us have had great fathers. Each of us have been hurt by our dads, or, and for every, for every dad is sinful and imperfect, and isn't able to lead, respect, and love his wife and children as he should, as the Bible directs us to as God has called him to, as God expects him to. But for some of us, the hurts go deeper than the typical fatherly failings. It's hard to hear about God the Father when the only father you know has mistreated you, has hurt you in ways that no father, no person ever should. It's hard to hear about God the Father when the only father you know has taken advantage of you, has betrayed you, has lied to you, has abused you. We hear about good fathers, we sing about how God is a good, good father, but we don't all know what that looks like. The word father is ash in the mouth, and we prefer it if, if that was a title that God didn't take for himself, because it colors him in ways that make us uncomfortable, that bring up hurts and pains we aren't ready, sometimes aren't capable of facing. For some of us, we are uncomfortable with a God the Father because the only Father we know has hurt us so deeply. If that's where you find yourself this morning, it is my prayer that you would know that the brokenness of our earthly fathers is not a reflection of our heavenly Father. Maybe our dad was or is great. Maybe our dad was a mess. Every dad has fallen short and none of those shortcomings are reflected in God the Father. 
Just as every person needs renewal, needs redemption, so does every father. None of our flawed characteristics, none of our sin is present in God. God takes what is broken and and makes us new. He takes the sinful and the dirty and gives us the clean and the righteous. God redeems. And in who he is as a father, God redeems fatherhood. But his redemptive work is not limited to fatherhood. For the prophet Isaiah states in our text this morning, God is our redeemer. You, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Redeemer. The redeemer of flawed fathers and flawed mothers. The redeemer of failed marriages. The redeemer of the church. The redeemer of people that have lost their way. God is the redeemer of his people. He is the redeemer of the sinner, the broken, the shamed, the abused. God is the redeemer of the skeptic. He's the redeemer of the faithless. He's the redeemer of the faithful. God is the redeemer for every time we've crossed our arms high and tight and said, no. God has looked at us and found us wanting. And instead of giving us what we deserve, he sent us his son. God sent us Jesus, and Jesus came and lived among us. He taught us. He suffered beside us. He experienced stubbed toes and skinned knees. He knew what it meant to be hungry and thirsty. He was rejected. He was mocked. He was persecuted. Dude got sunburned. Jesus lived life on earth shoulder to shoulder with us. He was tempted, but where we stumble and fall into temptation, Jesus never lost his balance. He never once gave in, and we hated him for it. Hated that he was always right, hated that he challenged the status quo, hated that we couldn't trap him, couldn't put him in a box, and so we arranged for his betrayal. And then we arranged for his death, and as Jesus, the innocent one, trudged up the hill to Calvary with a cross over his shoulders, he carried not just the weight of the timber, but the immense burden of all the sins that have ever been and ever will be committed across his shoulders. And as he was nailed to that cross, as the nails went through his hands and his feet, and as he was lifted up, put on hideous display, there on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. Our sin was imputed to him. It was given to him. He became it. And so the wrath of God for our sin was poured out, not on those who deserve it, but was poured out on Jesus. The sin that you have hidden, that you want no one to know about, Yet Jesus became that on the cross. The sin that everybody knows about. The sin that brings you shame. The sin that you can't seem to escape. Yet Jesus became that on the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus died for it. And as the wrath of God was poured out on his beloved, sinless, pure son, just before he surrendered his spirit, Jesus said these three words, It is finished. It is finished, church. It is finished, sinner. Your sin has been paid for. It is finished. There is no more to do. There is nothing you can do to make your sin right before God, for Jesus has done it. He paid the penalty of sin with his death, but he did not stay dead, did he? No, three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. Jesus claimed victory over the enemy. And when we rest in that, when we rest in the faith that God has given us, when we rest in the fruits of what we are given in our baptism, when we believe in Jesus Christ and recognize our need for his brutal but glorious work on the cross and the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at those who have faith, he sees not their sinfulness but Christ's righteousness for we have been redeemed through faith in Christ, God has 
has redeemed us. And that's not to say that our world isn't still broken in sin. Someday, as we read in Revelation 21, someday everything will be made new. Someday everything will be redeemed, and that day is coming. It may be today, it may be generations from now. We, we do not know, but what we do know is that God has called us, called his people to action. He has not called us to hide our faith. He has not called us to, to hunker down and wait out the storms of public opinion. He has not called us to complacency. God has called us to action. He has equipped his church. He has given us gifts and talents. He has given us abilities. He has given us faith. He has given us each other. And he calls us to join him in his mission. Do you hear that, church? Do you feel that? God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, has redeemed you and he has called you to mission called you to join him in his redemptive work in our broken world. So how will we respond? Will we cross our arms high and tight? Or will the love that God has for us broken sinners overflow into love for our broken neighbors? That we will be compelled to share the truth of the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and his love and desire for each and every one of us. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and powerful God we serve. Amen.